This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Huge changes happened in our world and continue to happen in the country due to the passing of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday afternoon, and. We decided we wanted to change up our schedule today um, and spend the first hour at least talking about uh, who she was, what that means for the Supreme Court, and what it means for our democracy for this election. After all, that is the focus of this class. I do think it merits taking a few minutes just to know who she was, uh, a little bit of her history. Um, and yes, definitely, as was discussed in the chat, you know, this was not, um, let's be clear, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not a ultra progressive person. She was not, um, you know, a, an advocate that was out in the streets fighting for women's rights or anybody's rights really uh, in that way. She was um, she was nuanced as every human being is. I also think though she did make important contributions to um, especially gender equity in this country. So it's important just to take a few minutes to know who it is that passed on Friday. So um, Ruth Bader, began as Ruth Bader, grew up, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, went to Cornell University on a full scholarship. So she definitely started out working class, met her husband at Cornell. This is her at that time, Facebook page at Cornell. Um, and her husband went into military service. She ended up uh, following him and not getting much work, even though she graduated with honors from Cornell. Um, but finally, when her husband was admitted into Harvard Law School, then she was too. Um, and even then was questioned by the dean, why are you taking the place of a man at Harvard Law School? What, what good can you bring in taking the place of a man at Harvard Law School? Um, her husband got very ill, ended up, she ended up taking care of him while in law school and taking care of her child as well. She got pregnant. Um, and then he graduated, went to New York to get a job, and she had to transfer to Columbia Law School to finish up her law degree. But she ended up at the top of her class, but still couldn't get any law firm jobs or clerkships until a mentor of hers threatened a judge that he wouldn't provide any more clerks unless he hired her. And so she ended up with a clerkship, ended up writing a book, uh, finally ended up uh, at Columbia Law School, first at Rutgers Law School as a professor, and then at Columbia Law School as a professor, um, and had to hide her second pregnancy so that she wouldn't get fired um, or lose her job as a professor. So she would wear big clothing to avoid that. Um, now, her first big case actually came about because of her husband. He was asked to represent a man um, who was barred from getting a tax deduction for the care of his mother because the IRS had a rule that said you could only take that tax deduction if you're a woman who is widowed or divorced and you need to get the tax deduction to take care of somebody. Um, but uh, so in other words, because it was a male plaintiff, she was able to use that to then claim that, you know, these laws had to be applied equally. And when the court actually ruled that she was right, that invalidated hundreds of other cases 
um, that had previously validated laws across the country that allowed for a differential treatment between men and women. And so she spent many years then after getting that lower court ruling, essentially applying the same rule to many, many different statutes across the country that applied rules, simple rules like this, like IRS tax deductions differently to men and women, which had previously been allowed. Um, and I think what's important to this point of she was not an ultra progressive, she was a cautious litigator who, in order to convince all male juries and judges, would always use male plaintiffs, almost always the plaintiffs in these cases, the people arguing these cases as to why there should be equality in the way the law treats men and women. They were generally all male plaintiffs who were harmed by an unequal treatment of the law between men and women. Her first Supreme Court case, for example, was Reed versus Reed, where um, a mother was asking to be the executor of her son's estate and because the father was not the right person to take care of her son's estate. And again, talking to an all-male Supreme Court about who's best to take care of this son's property and this son's estate was the best way to convince them that, um, the, that men needed to be treated equally in the law to women. Um, and, and that's kind of how she came up. She ended up saying that Supposedly, there's this equal protection clause, nor shall any state deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. That, that, that word, person, you would think covers men and women, but the Supreme Court didn't recognize that until 1971. So in 1980, after being a professor for many years at Columbia and Rutgers, Jimmy Carter appointed her to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and then, of course, in 1993, President Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court. This is actually Joe Biden at the time walking with her. Joe Biden was the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, who kind of like similar to Lindsey Graham right now was the person determining kind of how the Senate appointment would happen of her to the Supreme Court. And I do want to lift up at this point when she was nominated, a lot of women's groups actually voiced concerns about her as a nominee. Um, just to be very clear and untransparent and honest. They were worried that she had previously raised concerns publicly about Roe versus Wade, and the, they were concerned about how she would come down on abortion. She was not seen as the most uh, progressive person on gender issues, let alone other issues. But she did end up on the Supreme Court. Um, she did end up with the first ruling, 1996, a very historic ruling against the Virginia Military Institute, a military academy, say that that, you know, she wrote the decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that the VMI, Virginia Military Institute, could no longer remain an all-male institution. And it kind of set a huge precedent because it was a ruling that said, although women generally don't apply, you can't bar women from, especially those that are qualified from going to the Virginia Military Institute. And that did set the stage for many other important cases. Um, I think why, why she ended up being lionized in the way that she was, was not so much that she was a progressive, but that the court went to the far right, right? With the death of Senator Day O'Connor in 2000, I'm sorry, not the death, the retirement of Senator Day O'Connor in 2006 um, from the Supreme Court, 
who was a Reagan appointee, not a liberal, but moderate. When she left, the court took a hard turn to the right. And, um, and you know, Justice Ginsburg ended up becoming lionized, again, not because she was an ultra progressive, not because she was an advocate, not because she was the, had been the staunchest advocate for women's rights, but because in a very conservative court, she was a uh, she was sort of like a, a bulwark or a barrier against some hard right decisions. In 2007, for example, um, she dissented against the Supreme Court's decision on the Lily Ledbetter uh, case around equal pay, and in her dissent called on Congress to pass legislation that would override the court's decision to not allow you know, uh, limited back pay for victims of gender pay discrimination. Uh, and that led, of course, to the first bill that Obama passed um, and, and as president, the first bill he signed, excuse me, as president being the Lily, Lily Ledbetter law. That's Lily Ledbetter standing right behind him. Um, you know, Lily Ledbetter had sued Goodyear for not uh, receiving the same pay as her male counterparts. The Supreme Court limited how much she could get in terms of restitution for that discrimination, but Congress then passed this Equal Pay Act that was important and that came out of Justice Ginsburg's dissent. So there were a lot of other cases like this in which her voice ended up being uh, most strongly felt through her dissents. It wasn't that she was an ultra progressive, it was that she was dissenting fiercely against right-wing attacks on gender equality, and then also on the Voting Rights Act and other, other important issues. Um, so with her passing, um, we had, you know, four supposedly liberal justices and four supposedly conservative justices with um, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, kind of being a moderate conservative who ended up uh, over the last couple of years of Trump's presidency voting with the liberals on a number of issues uh, in saving DACA for the Dreamers, uh, in upholding the ACA, um, healthcare reform, you know, that was initiated by Obama. With her passing, even if he were to vote with the liberals, you've got a at best, four, four, um, four conservative, four liberal votes on a lot of these issues, ACA and other issues. And if they appoint a justice in her place, then they'd have a five, three or a six, three, depending on how Chief Justice Roberts votes. So um, I think the most, you know, Professor Cohn is going to talk a little bit about the actual process of nominating justices and what the Senate's going to do and all of that. What I want to talk about is uh, beyond reproductive justice, which people have raised, and immigration, which people have raised, and the ACA, which is not just some issue off in the future, but is coming to the Supreme Court for a vote on November 10th, one week after the election. I think beyond all of those really important issues, this is a class about the elections, and I want to talk about what does this mean for the 2020 election? because the Supreme Court has played a very, very big role in determining the fate of an election 
in the past. Um, in, 20, in 2000, exactly 20 years ago, uh, the Supreme Court essentially determined who was going to be president. Um, so, and just to say one more thing, sorry, I didn't mention, um, when there's no clear majority, when there is a 4-4 vote, that means the lower court's ruling stands. So if a lower court rules that the ACA is unconstitutional or parts of the ACA are unconstitutional, even if Chief Justice Roberts votes with the liberals to uphold the ACA, uh, if there's a 4-4 split, the lower court ruling will stand, which means the ACA would be declared unconstitutional and be dismantled during a pandemic. So clearly these are issues that are critical to millions of people. Um, but I do think overarching all of those issues is the fate of our democracy and the fate of these elections and what will happen uh, with regard to the elections and the Supreme Court's rule in it. And so to understand that, I really wanted to talk about this court case, Bush versus Gore, which happened in 2000 with the election. I thought it was important for you all to know because I don't know how many of you were alive in 2000 or know about what happened. Excuse me if I'm wrong about that, um, but I think it's important for people to know. So first of all, uh, for those that may not know, Al Gore was the vice president under Bill Clinton, who had been president for two terms prior to 2000. Uh, George W. Bush was the son of George Bush, who had been president prior to Clinton, and who the Republicans never forgave because uh, George Bush was not allowed a second term because Bill Clinton was voted in to, and took away his second term. So we had two, we had two, um, uh, two terms of Bill Clinton, a Democrat, right before this hotly contested and very close election between somebody who came out of the Clinton administration and the son of somebody who came out of the administration just before that. So very close, hotly contested presidential election. On the evening of the election, which was November 7th, 2000, there was no clear winner. And in fact, states like Oregon and New Mexico said it was too close to call. But the biggest contest was definitely Florida, where as you can see from these numbers, it was a ridiculously close, ridiculously close election. In fact, um, at first, the, all the major networks declared that Gore was the winner and it did come down to Florida. Like the whole presidential election came down to Florida uh, and their 25 electoral votes and the networks declared Gore the winner and then switched and said, no, Bush has an insurmountable lead. And so, at th and so Gore at that point actually conceded the election to Bush, but at 3 a.m., on October 8th morning called Bush to retract his concession because the difference was so small, 327 votes, that it put into play an automatic recount. The law in Florida was that less than a 0.5% differential meant you needed an automatic recount. So here was what it came down to. With that de declaration that you needed a recount, Literally hundreds of lawsuits were filed across the state of Florida. There were lots of issues with, uh, some of you may remember these words, hanging chads, 
These were incomplete ballots. They were not completely punched through, so it wasn't clear what people had voted for. Pregnant chads, pregnant chads were paper ballots that were dimpled but weren't pierced all the way through because the, the way that the ballots worked, you had to punch a hole in the ballot. Some were not punched all the way through. Some were not, some the, the, the paper was still hanging on the ballot, so it wasn't clear what the vote was. The biggest issue though came from Palm Beach County where there was this issue of the butterfly ballot design where as you can see, the real issue was that a lot of people got confused thinking they were voting for Al Gore and instead ended up voting for Pat Buchanan because they punched the second hole. You know, they looked at this and saw on the left, okay, the Republican is the first hole, the Democrat is the second hole, therefore I will punch the second hole, but the second hole went to Pat Buchanan. Um, so this became a major issue of the lawsuit. Pat Buchanan ended up getting 20% uh, of his total votes statewide um, from, this, from this Palm Beach County mistake. And so, you know, people were up in arms, but it was also important to know who was the governor, who was the secretary of state at the time. Bush's brother, George W. Bush's brother, was the governor of the state, Jeb. Jeb Bush, and the Secretary of State overseeing the election, Catherine Harris, was the co-chair of Bush's Florida campaign. Um, so the people overseeing the election were on the Bush side. Meanwhile, the state attorney general was heading the Gore campaign. So there was ridiculous conflicts of interest on both sides. And essentially, there was a tug of war between Harris, who was the co-chair of Bush's Florida campaign, and also the Secretary of State overseeing the election. She just wanted to go ahead and certify the state's election results on November 14th, a full week after the election. I think this is all important to note because we are looking at a very similar situation. We are unlikely to have an answer on election day. We are just like this, likely to be fighting a week later over who won, particularly in key, key, counts, key counties and states like this. So... After this, about 50 individual lawsuits were filed concerning recounts and counts, certification deadlines. Finally, December 8th, this is a full month and a day after the election, the, the Florida Supreme Court, before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Florida Supreme Court ruled that there had to be a manual recount in the counties where there was a statistically significant number of undervotes. And so immediately Bush filed a lawsuit. That was Bush versus Gore. And December 9th, the very next day, you know, that's the irony is that in some cases, the Supreme Court says we can't move quickly. We have to deliberate. In other cases, they say, no, we got to do it tomorrow. And they do. And on December 9th, uh, it came to the Supreme Court and they ruled in a 5-4 decision uh, that all manual recounts must halt thus giving the election to Bush. So um, essentially, I think what's important to note here is that their reasoning as to why the recounts must halt is that they said that the way that the recounting was happening was violating equal protection, was violating people's constitutional rights. So they were not opposed to a recount. They said the way the recount was happening was not right. And they said, the, the majority, sorry, there just isn't enough time to figure out how to do the recount properly. And I, I think that's so critical because the counties where recounts were not happening tended to be 
communities of color, of course, in Florida, who essentially were robbed of their vote because the Supreme Court said, we don't have time to figure out how to do recounts properly. We don't have time to figure out how to do recounts in a constitutional way. Therefore, we're just ending this and the election goes to Bush. And of course, you know that these were Republican appointees on the Supreme Court. Um, so it's important to note also that Ted Cruz in the US Senate led the Bush legal team in this case, um, had a very big role in this. Um, and it's important to note that the minority of four dissented very heavily. This is the decision where you know, Justice Ginsburg, instead of the typical, I respectfully dissent, just said, I dissent. And of course that became a meme. <laughs> and um, you all know about Notorious RBG. Some of that emerged from this meme that happened when she just said, I dissent, rather than I uh, respectfully dissent. So um, I do think it's important to know that not that long ago, just 20 years ago, the Supreme Court did decide the fate of the election, did stop a recount, did decide the fate of the election, did essentially hand the election to the Republican candidate. Uh, and that is completely possible, especially given the fact that the pandemic is causing a lot of mail-in voting. We talked already about the post office and the issues with the post office you know, all kinds of challenges that are going to delay having a clear and final vote on election day that could result in the Supreme Court stepping in and deciding what is going to happen with regard to the election and handing one candidate or the other the presidency. So I am going to stop there and hand it over to Professor Cohen. Yeah, thank you very much. That was uh, outstanding. Um, a, a couple of just a few small things to add to the the two thousand, um, which I think is useful for all of us is to you know have patience, people. This election, the election returns are going to take a long time. They're not. We're not going to know who's president on November third, uh, and I, I will take some time to game that out and what this I think is going to look like. Uh, come November 3rd. But the, the 2000 election, it, there's a number of things that I think are particularly important, not the least of which is the, the advice to Al, you know, that Stacey Abrams took from Al Gore, which is never concede until it is done. Uh, the appearance, that, and politics is appearance uh, by and large, the appearance that Gore was down in the vote in Florida, that he had conceded the election and now was trying to get back into it, created the perception of sort of sour grapes, that he, they'd actually been defeated and that this belonged to W, that it was his state that he had won it. Secondly, the Democrats, rather than take the more kind of expansive approach and demand a recount across the entire state of Florida, only asked for a recount in specific counties where they believed they would get more votes for them. And that allowed the Supreme Court to make a 14th Amendment case against the recount, saying that not all votes were not being treated equally, that there was an equal protection mandate that said that they had to step in and prevent this recount. Had Al Gore not conceded initially, and had Al Gore not demanded a specific recount, but a general recount of the state of Florida, he would have won. Because in the end, the AP, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and others did go back and recounted every vote in the state of Florida and discovered that, in fact, Al Gore did indeed win that state. 
So what you have is a situation exactly as Professor Jayaraman says, the Supreme Court intervened and handed the election to the man who lost. George W. Bush did not win the national popular vote. Uh, He was some considerable distance from it. Um, And in the end, he did not win Florida either, but yet he became president anyways. This is uh, the the extraordinary power of the United States Supreme Court. Um, And in particular, and I think 2000 really is where what we have to be thinking about, where we're going, you know, not just a Florida a recount in Florida and the chat is very funny. Like everybody can make fun of Florida, but it is like, it is what we are. It it is what is going to decide this election. I'm that at this point, there's, I think there's an 85% chance that Nate Silver suggests that Pennsylvania is the tipping point state, but Trump can't win the presidency if he doesn't win Florida. Biden can win if he loses Florida, but if Biden wins Florida, he's president. That's just, that's it. So it is one of the most complex states. It's one of the most hotly contested states, uh, and precedent shows that it 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 is a decider. Um, so let me just um, you know, I, I, Professor Jairaman's introduction to Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was terrific. I, I have very little to add to that other than that, that you know the, the the her greatest I think achievement legally was in the the years in the the, the 1970s to the to 1980 before she entered the federal court, in which she was an ACLU lawyer. Um, fighting against gender discrimination for the American Civil Liberties Union. And I show this is, you know, it's such a working mom outfit um, at the ACLU. Uh, It's really a a kind of a fabulous uh, image of hers. But the politics of this and how it it, it parses out going forward is what I want to talk about briefly. Now, um, on uh, the over the weekend, uh, Donald Trump um, at a, a speech in Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, told the the crowd, quote, I will be putting forth the nominee next week. It will be a woman, uh, Trump told supporters in an outdoor rally at Fayetteville, North Carolina. Actually, I like women much more than I like men. I'm just going to let that, let you figure out what you think that means coming from Donald Trump. Um, but Trump is determined to put a nominee in. Um, he is determined to uh, name a woman, and he is now saying as of this morning that that name will come at the end of the week. So there's going to be uh, a lot going on to determine um, how, who, the, who the nominee is going to be, how they're going to put her name forward, uh, and, and indeed like what the political stakes of this are, because this is, make no mistake, a political earthquake. This has shaken the country. It has shaken many of you. It has shaken me. Uh, It is a political earthquake. As if there weren't enough at stake in this election already. The death of the most liberal member of the court now, um, you know, only the second woman in the history of the Supreme Court, uh, with her death, the stakes of this just simply get even higher. And the possibility of a contentious nomination hearing in the midst of an election campaign um, has most people's heads exploding. Uh, many of you will remember the Kavanaugh hearings uh, that were uh, two years ago and just how dramatic and contested those were, particularly the testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault and that this played itself out on in, in the uh, Senate um, judiciary hearings. I would anticipate uh, hopefully nothing quite so um, horrific 
but certainly something as dramatic um, moving forward, particularly, um, you know, when what we're thinking about here is senators who are going to have to line up, do research to question, including Kamala Harris, right, who is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who should be running for president, but would have to be in Congress to question whoever the nominee is, let alone uh, large numbers of senators, in particular, Lindsey Graham, who are running for re-election. Now, the stakes in terms of the federal judiciary also could not be any higher. And indeed, over the weekend, Donald Trump, um, sorry, uh, Donald Trump uh, issued a statement yet again um, uh, about the importance of the federal judiciary. And so these decisions have begun to emerge um, that sort of, that, that, that indicate what who's got an advantage here. This is really the question now is who the death of, of Ginsburg provides what kind of political advantage. Now, Donald Trump signal and this is a Politico article said that Ginsburg's death gives GOP an edge in 2020 legal fights. Now, there have been over 200 court challenges in more than 45 states to election law already in this cycle. Dozens of these cases could be headed to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump is suing multiple states to curtail um, uh, vote by mail, just as the Democrats are suing to expand voting rights in several states. 45 states, there are um, current um, uh, um, uh, legal cases pending. Now, as Professor Jai Raman said, that if the you know if there's a four-four tie in the Supreme Court, the lower court holdings rule, and Trump has now appointed almost a quarter of all active federal judges in the United States, including, for example, the Seventh Circuit Court, which covers the state of Wisconsin, which has a nine-to-two conservative judge advantage. Donald Trump is very aware of this, and his transactional political intelligence tells him that this is an enormous advantage. And this is the quote I want to read from the political uh, Politico article. He says, quote, we're going to have a victory on November 3rd, the likes of which you've never seen. Now we're counting on the federal court system to make it so that we can, so that we can actually have an evening where we know who wins. They're uh, not where the votes are going to be counted a week later or two weeks later. This is Trump stating unequivocally in public that he expects the judges that he's appointed to essentially hand him the election. Whether in voting rights decisions, in recount decisions, in 2000-like decisions, that Trump is expecting his appointees to hand him this election. He is demanding it of of them. Now, what we do know in particular is that the fate of this seat is very much, this Supreme Court seat is very much in the hands of the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Republican from Kentucky. Now, as I said, Trump has appointed nearly one-fourth of the federal judiciary. This means that of a total of 792 federal judges from the Supreme Court down to the uh, district appeals courts, Trump has appointed 194, which is more judges than any other president to this in, in, by the end of their first term. Indeed, Trump has already appointed 53 appeals court judges, whereas uh, Obama in this same period had only appointed 30. Now, this, in, by and large, is because of the effect of uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority to block Obama's uh, appointment of federal judges. It wasn't just the Antonin Scalia slash Mar- uh, Merrick Garland seat that they essentially removed from the presidential authority, but dozens of federal appellate court seats met the same obstacle so that Obama was prevented from uh, installing his judges. 
So, and as Mitch McConnell famously said, um, he told an audience uh, that, quote, one of my proudest moments was when I told Obama, you will not fill this Supreme Court vacancy. So what Mitch McConnell basically did in 2016, again, Antonin Scalia dies nine months before the election. And, and, um, but while the primary process is ongoing, and yet he, uh, Mitch McConnell steps in and told, tells Obama that we are, you, you're, not only is your candidate not going to be seated, he's not even going to get a hearing. Right? No vote, no hearing, no nothing. We will just not seat this. Meaning that Mitch McConnell essentially arbitrarily reduced the size of the federal bench by one, making the, judi- the, the Supreme Court eight, uh, eight um, justices rather than uh, the traditional nine. So McConnell, as you may know, is also up for re-election um, this season. He is uh, in a fight against a woman named Amy McGrath um, for to hold on to his seat. It's probably the toughest fight that McConnell has faced in his time, but let's be frank here, Amy McGrath has almost no chance. She's 12, 15 points behind, um, and the ability to make that up is going to be extremely difficult. Mitch McConnell is hugely unpopular in the rest of the country, uh, but they like him in Kentucky. Now, Senators, in particular, have had a range of responses to this. Um, my favorite is Chuck Grassley, who is a senator from Iowa, who very much is in a position, he sits on the Judiciary Committee, who um, very much in a position to go back on his previous promise from 2016, uh, and he issued this tweet about a dead pigeon in his yard. Uh, this is, I think, in a certain sense, where the Republican senators are at right now. They do not want to be uh, caught on record saying anything. They're not quite sure what, uh, what to do or what to say, especially given how many of them are on the hook for the refusal to seat Merrick, uh, Merrick Garland in 2016. So Chuck Grassley is sending a tweet out about a dead pigeon in his yard, whereas Ed Markey, uh, a, the, a liberal senator from Massachusetts, also up for re-election, but all, all but guaranteed to win, I think has set down a marker for what the Democratic leverage in this debate actually is when he writes, Mitch McConnell set the precedent, no Supreme Court vacancies filled in an election year. If he violates it, when Democrats control the Senate in the next Congress, we must abolish the filibuster and expand the Supreme Court. This then lays down, I think, the clear marker. And it should be reminded, I mean, you all at least were assigned to the Constitution a couple of weeks ago, and you will note that the United States Constitution does not say how many justices there should be in the United States Supreme Court. The the number nine does not appear anywhere in the Constitution. It is merely a question of custom. When the Supreme Court was first uh, started, they'd had only six justices. Uh, They slowly added justices until the Civil War, in which there were nine. Now, we can talk about what... um, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln did to the Supreme Court, uh, which was basically ignore it, to force it into a corner. Um, the, in the 1850s, the United States Supreme Court was known as the Citadel of Slavery, an institution dedicated to the purposes of holding property rights over human rights. And it is essentially fulfilled that function for its entire, the entirety of its history, with the notable exception of the Warren Court, which issued the Brown versus Board of Education decision, Loving versus Virginia, and elsewhere in the 1950s and 1960s. But traditionally, the United States Supreme Court is a radically conservative institution dedicated to upholding the, the purposes of property over human rights. And so what we see then in the fight for this seat is a new focus on the races in the United States Senate. 
And these are the sort of senators in the hot seat. Um, two of these senators in particular have come out already. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine have come out clearly saying that we should not seat, uh, we should not have a hearing. That the, whoever this, that this the, 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 who wins the next presidency should um, have this selection. So these are two Republicans, moderate Republicans, really arguably the only two moderate Republicans left. Um, and Susan Collins is very much in a tight race against Sarah Gideon for her Senate seat in Maine, a seat that Susan Collins at this point is, is headed to lose. So she needs to show some kind of solid uh, gap or separation from Trump, um, in part because she voted for Kavanaugh and put Kavanaugh over the top, and that Maine voters are intend to hold her accountable for that vote. So Susan Collins and Murkowski have said that they will not support um, uh, a hearing this season. And now the pressure then falls to Mitt Romney of Utah, the only Republican to vote to convict Trump in the impeachment trial. Um, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who is actively currently losing his Senate race uh, in um, uh, North Carolina to Gal Cunningham, uh, and Lindsey Graham, who is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and is um, a longtime Republican senator from South Carolina, uh, who is himself in a tough race against Jamie Harrison. Now, the composition of the United States Senate at this point is really important. There are uh, 53 Republicans, 47 uh, Democrats, and this means you need at least four Republicans to peel away from Mitch McConnell to refuse the votes to have a hearing. Um, right now, there are two. We need, they essentially need two more. Now, where they're going to come from, we don't know. Cory Gardner is also losing in Colorado to the former governor, uh, John Hickenlooper. And so why we look at these states is you've got a, a Republican in blue Colorado. Uh, you've got a Republican in purple North Carolina. These folks are going to make a very careful political calculus. Trump wants to ram this through because he wants to seat this character. He wants to seat um, his his person to solidify his political alliances. But senators now, as they see Trump losing and they see themselves being dragged down by Trump, need to make a political calculus. Uh, what's the better move? To, be up, to adhere to the precedent that McConnell set in 2016 or to embrace power politics, side with the base and push this through, whatever the cost. These are the kinds of key questions that are emerging. And of course, they're emerging in a landscape in which they can be readily and are being openly accused of hypocrisy. And let me just give you, if you haven't seen it already, the words of uh, Lindsey Graham uh, from October 2018. So I'm a conservative, proud of it, want conservative judges on the court when it's our turn to pick. When it's their turn, I've honored their picks. Merrick Garland, I'll tell you about Thank it. you. I was just going to, yeah. uh, he's not North Korea, but, no, we'll listen, not, but you want to do 30 seconds on Merrick Garland. Judge, Judge Scalia dies in 2016. The primary process is ongoing. And if you look back in 100 years, nobody has re been replaced under that circumstance. If you listen to what Joe Biden said in Bush 41, you should hold it over to the next election. Joe is right a lot. So I felt like I was doing the traditional thing there when it came to uh, Sotomayor and Kagan. I thought I did the traditional thing. Now I'll tell you this. This may make you feel better, but I really don't care. If a 
opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. And I've got a pretty good chance of being the judiciary. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold the tape. Hold the tape, right? Now, there's multiple tapes of him saying this. And make no mistake, he's already walked this back. He's concocted some completely bullshit excuse to say basically like, well, we're going to have this vote. Now, on the one hand, we can cry hypocrisy. These Republicans are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. And of course they are. Um, That's not really, in the end, what is at stake here? Two things are at stake. The first of which I think is the understanding um, that I take from Jason Stanley, who in this book, How Fascism Works, he's a professor at, uh, um, at uh, a philosophy at Yale. He writes, quote, um, it is difficult to represent yourself as genuinely representing the common interests in an environment of general distrust. And he begins to think about what's at stake in terms of political hypocrisy. And he imagines a politician that they might openly and brazenly lie. He says, in short, one could signal authenticity by openly and explicitly rejecting what are presumed to be sacrosanct political values. Such politicians would be a breath of fresh air in a political culture that seems dominated by real and imagined hypocrisy. The argument here is that fascist ideology, such as it is, does not care about moral consistency, does not care about general democratic principles. It cares about power about winning, achieving, solidifying, and retaining power. The idea that we can actually hold these people accountable to their hypocrisy is laughable. None of us should have ever imagined that this would be possible. The Republican Party are power players. What they care about is power more than anything else. The Democrats are the ones who are essentially attached to proceduralism, to democratic values, and the like, and have thus been run roughshod over, particularly in Supreme Court nominations, for the last 20-plus years. The question is not whether or not the Republicans are hypocrites. The question is what kind of political uh, cost are they going to be forced to pay for it? And that is entirely up to us. Now, if they try and ram this nomination through, what will the costs be? Will they lose the Senate? Will they lose the presidency? Will they seek to ram through a nomination during a lame duck session after the presidential race, but before the new Congress can be seated? All of these things are well within the realm of possibility. The the Democrats' procedural capacity to prevent a vote and a seating of a Supreme Court justice in these circumstances is extraordinarily slim, especially if there are not Republicans that defect and come over to their side. And the chances of, we've got two of them, the chances of four of them is small. And there are games about the replacement seats uh, in Arizona and in Georgia, and that gets very complicated very quickly. But what's at stake here is nothing less than the fact that the Republicans are determined to lock in a minority rule for a declining white male conservative ruling class for a generation. Using the Senate, the Electoral College, and the Supreme Court, this declining minority can wield the full power of the United States against a majority of its citizens. Trump and his agenda have never been popular. They have never reached a majority popularity with the American public, and yet because of these minoritarian positions, they are able to ram through their political will.
The United States Senate pays into this in a dramatic way. Nate Silver over the weekend has demonstrated quite succinctly that there is a six to eight percent conservative bent to the United States Senate that plays a role in uh, this, the judiciary. Um, that what we see here is that um, the United States Senate roughly takes about one third of the political power away from urban areas and gives it to white rural districts, meaning that the United States Senate, in terms of its representational capacity, is a country that is 69% white rather than 60%, which means that basically the United States Senate is 20 years ago. Looks like it actually represents a country uh, that existed 20 years ago, but not today. Indeed, it's worth remembering that Donald Trump lost the 2016 presidential election by 2.8 million votes, that the United States Senate Democrats represent 15 million more Americans than the Senate GOP, and that the Senate Dems got 18 million more votes than the Senate GOP did. And yet, the popularity of pushing through a case of the Supreme Court right now is very much up in the air. There have been some quick snap polls that have already indicated quite explicitly that this, to do this, for Republicans to push this through would be hugely unpopular and would come at a dramatic cost. But the real question for the Republicans is, is that cost not worth it? Some in the Republican Party might actively believe that giving the, the, the Senate and even the presidency to the Democrats for at least one term may be worth a six to three Supreme Court um, balance because they can then believe that if the, 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 a Democratic Senate uh, enters, you know, and takes its seat and passes a Green New Deal and raises the minimum wage and legalizes DACA and does all of these things that the Supreme, the conservative Supreme Court will render it all unconstitutional. This is the political calculus that they are making right now. And I think Trump's reprieve of a week um, is going to have to, there's going to have to be a lot of internal polling. They are going to have to make this decision and make it quickly. What is important, though, is that what's at the center of this is political power, but particularly the political coalition that holds the Republican and Trumpist party together. And it's at the center of this is the promise that Trump made to American evangelical Christians. Now, if 40, excuse me, 70.4% of the American people consider themselves Christians. Evangelicals only make up about a quarter of those, or 26.3% of the population. Um, so I'm looking at my numbers here. 22% um, are Catholic, and 16% are mainline Protestants. Now, within this, these are conservative largely Southern and suburban Christians attached to an ideology of being born again of re and, and religious conservatism. A deal was brokered in 2015, Michael Cohen, no relation, Donald Trump's uh, lawyer, brokered a deal with Jerry Falwell Jr. Now, he may, may have noticed that he's been in the news lately for multiple sexual scandals, um, who is the son of the great um, uh, member of the founder of the moral majority, uh, Jerry Falwell, one of the key figures in bringing evangelicals into the Republican Party in the 1970s, 1980s. Jerry Falwell Jr., the son, 
runs Liberty University and runs the Moral Majority and others, brokered a deal with Michael Cohen to bring conservative um, evangelicals into the Trump coalition before the Iowa caucuses. And this then gave Donald Trump his largest and, and, and most solid constituency inside uh, the United States within the Republican alliance. Trump's selection of Mike Pence as his vice president, an evangelical Christian from uh, Indiana, further solidified the bonds between Trump and evangelical Christians. And this comes at a deal, at a cost for evangelicals. Needless to say, um, the moral majority version of the conservative uh, Christians, you would think would have a problem with a thrice married philanderer who dies off prostitutes and uh, the porn stars and others, um, you know, strong arms women, openly brags about sexual assault and the like, that this would somehow be the candidate of the moral majority. Um, But the issue here is a trade-off. This is a political exchange that in exchange for looking the other way on Trump's moral failings, evangelicals get right-wing judges. Right-wing judges that they hope will not just, will bring a new front in the debates around um, uh, uh, free speech and religious rights that are starting to pay off on the courts, particularly the Hobby Lobby case and a number of others, the, particularly the court that case that just um, came through the courts, that it would l- allow a private insurance company to deny women um, a birth control as part of that. So a Catholic uh, employer runs its own um, you know, uh, healthcare can deny you birth control under the guise of their religious freedom. So various forms of discrimination are now going to be legalized under the guise of religious freedom um, under the, the sort of deal that is being made with evangelicals here, um, pushing religious schools and all these others. The consequence of this is absolutely to put abortion front and center in the presidential election for this year. And indeed, uh, this is something that political groups have been uh, pushing for and vying for for a very long time. Um, In the words of Tony Perkins, the president of the the Conservative Family Research Council, quote, this alters the political landscape in a very significant way, referring to the death of RBG. This will take the focus off coronavirus. This will take the focus off a lot of things. And indeed, I, I mean, I mean, just reflect, it worked, right? <laughs> this is the first time we've actually, I will have mentioned that we, we crossed the threshold. There'd been 200,000 coronavirus deaths in the United States. Um, it happened right about the same time that RBG died. Uh, we're approaching 1 million global deaths. Um, we will see if the Republicans successfully use this to deflect attention away from the coronavirus. Beyond that, if you take the words of Ilse Hoag, who's the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, quote, it's also really an important symbol of women's place in society at a time when women feel like we're being attacked and denigrated. If you are looking at this activated base of women who are already politically engaged, I do see a new fervor. So these are the, the right and the left on the abortion debate trying to decide who's the, the death of Ginsburg and the fight over this seat, whose constituency is more activated, whose constituency is more likely to turn out and vote. This is a, a serious question, and the polling on this is just getting started. We simply don't know. But if we take the words of Susan Polkoff Shaw, a Democrat in the Cleveland suburbs, quoted in the New York Times, she said she planned to visit a, a, a vigil for Justice Ginsburg and wrote, quote, I think it has ignited us more than ever. I'm mad that we put so much on her tiny little shoulders for so long. She was all we had to protect us from becoming this patriarchal backward country. 
And I think that this reflects very clearly on a lot of your spoken anxiety about how is it that the death of an 87-year-old cancer survivor could throw this entire country into disarray? How the basic foundation of human rights for LGBTQ plus folks, for women, uh, for immigrants, for voting rights, how all of those things could be thrown into absolute disarray over the death of a single individual. This is evidence of a highly unstable state. This is not, we are not in a stable or secure position. The understanding that our democracy is really quite fraught should rise to, the, to all of our attention in this specific moment. The question around abortion will loom large in any selection of a forthcoming justice. Uh, these are some uh, numbers from Gallup polling. Uh, opinion, public opinion polling on abortion is extraordinarily both stable and very difficult to discern because the results are always dependent on the nature and the framing of the question. And so what you see here on this chart is that while um, 50 plus percent of the American people believe that abortion should be legal only under certain circumstances. Now it does not determine, so more than 50% of the public believes that abortion should be legal under certain circumstances. What those circumstances are is not spelled out. Those circumstances can be highly draconian. Those circumstances can be pretty liberal. So this is a difficult thing to parse. But what you do have is 29% of the American people believe that abortion should be legal under, under any circumstance, and only 20% of the American people believe that abortion should be illegal in every circumstance. So we're a deeply divided nation, but the country does indeed skew in a pro-choice direction. How big that skew is depends on how the question is asked and what kind of abortion laws are being afforded. It should be said that in the last six months, Southern and Midwestern states have passed some 58 laws attempting to restrict or ban abortion, including six states that have sought to criminalize abortion um, by women, uh, when, when um, women seek abortion after just six weeks. Abortion after six weeks will be criminalized. Most women do not even know that they are pregnant at six weeks, let alone are capable of making, are willing to make a decision to terminate such a pregnancy. So this is a highly contentious and difficult, I mean, fraught moment. And so what we are confronted with then are two justices who have risen, or two uh, appellate court judges who have risen to the top now of Trump's um, discussion lists. On the one hand, you have a very conservative Catholic justice who's recently been appointed to the Seventh, court, Seventh Circuit Court uh, named Amy um, Coney Barrett, uh, who has been quoted, I'll just give you this as her quote that she says that, quote, a legal career is but a means to an end, and that end is building the kingdom of God. She is uh, committedly anti-abortion, as are both of these candidates. Uh, Amy uh, Coney Bryant was the original choice um, uh, to fulfill uh, the Kavanaugh seat, but Trump has reportedly claimed that he wanted to save her uh, for the Ginsburg seat. The other who is rocketed to the top of the hot list here is Judge Barbara Lagoa, who sits on the 11th Circuit Court in Atlanta, Georgia. She is a Cuban-American woman from Miami. She has risen to the top of this list because as a Cuban-American, as a Floridian, um, and as a very well-connected player within the federal Federalist Society in Florida and in Florida politicians, Donald Trump may in fact be looking to make a lifetime appointment to the United States Supreme Court 
court so that he can shore up the, the electoral votes in Florida. That this is a bid not to appoint, you know, to, pay, to appoint somebody that he's fine with, but in the end to win the state of Florida. So we started, you know, Professor Jai Rahman started talking about Florida. We're going to continue talking about Florida. And it may indeed be that Trump will try and appoint a Cuban-American to the Supreme Court. A Cuban-American who rather controversially, controversially um, weighed in on the, the, a bill, uh, excuse me, a law, to, a, a legal decision that disenfranchised um, uh, 85,000 Floridians um, former, uh, uh, the, uh, the formerly incarcerated Floridians uh, seeking to have their vote, right to vote reinstated, that she uh, interceded in that against them reclaiming their voting rights. So, you know, here we, you know, here we are. I mean, would we expect Donald Trump to do anything less than engage in a transactional politics to put a right-wing uh, Hispanic from Florida on to the court uh, with the belief that that is not only going to galvanize a Hispanic vote for him, but win him the state of Florida. So the question then becomes, you know, by and large, what can be done? What can be done about this? I, I think I, it is a very high hurdle for the, the Democrats um, to stop, a, under the current circumstances, to stop a Republican nomination. Again, I think what I've said before is the consequences, the cost of this is very much up to the voters, is very much up to us. I mean, I give you this, and I would call, ask Sarah to come back in and offer some versions of what can be done, you know, to, and, and what I'm offering here are some 10 long-term structural transformations that this country deeply needs to restore and rebuild its democracy. Many of these are things that we've already uh, spoken about. Um, the start, the simple, uh, is to make Election Day a holiday, to increase voter turnout. Secondly, to make D.C. a state, uh, indeed, even, and then possibly Puerto Rico or Guam, uh, unless those two places decide they want independence, uh, to end the Senate filibuster, to expand the Supreme Court and institute juridical term limits. The, the chaos caused by justices retiring or dying in office is exhausting this country. Uh, it has been floated that um, to make Supreme Court just, this would require a constitutional amendment, but that a justice is to serve 18 year terms in which every president gets two justices. One in their first two years, another in their second two years, and it is a regular process uh, that comes with the presidency. And you, you know, assigning uh, the Supreme Court justices 18 year terms. Um, to expand the House of Representatives, why have we not expanded the House of Representatives? Um, in the 1920s, um, they, they did not do reapportionment because of the Republican control um, and because of the concern that the, the United States Census determined uh, that there were more people living in cities than in rural areas in 1920, for the first time in U.S. history. And so subsequently to that, a, a bargain was struck that froze the United States House of Representatives at 435 votes. Why? There's nothing in the Constitution that says that's how big the United States House of Representatives could be. The House of Representatives should be double that size based upon the increase in population. We need to abolish the Supreme Court, excuse me, the Electoral College in favor of a national popular vote and partisan gerrymandering where uh, based on redistricting, uh, politicians get to choose their voters rather than voters choosing their politicians. Uh, we need to restore and expand the Voting Rights Act to make it easier to vote and for everyone to have the right to vote. We need to federalize election laws and standards so things like hanging chads and butterfly ballots don't happen again and that there's a single federal standard for elections rather than having 50 separate state elections that are easy to corrupt. And lastly, public financing over elections so that we don't have the kind of pay-to-play politics that dominate the nation today. So what I think we have is this, the crisis of legitimacy 
that the death of RBG is forcing on this country is asking us, forcing us to ask very serious questions about structural transformation to democratize the United States. Sorry, do you want to add anything to that, please? Please add something to that. I do. Um, can I share my screen real quick? Thank you. So I had a couple of people um, email me to say, what can we do over the weekend? And I think there's so many things you can do. And Professor Cohen listed several of them, but it gets a little bit overwhelming. So I like to talk about things you can do in the context, always in threes, because I feel like it makes it less, a little less overwhelming. I like the 10 um, platform. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, So first of all, uh, any of you, whether you are a citizen, live in this country, like any of you could call the US Senate and anybody in the US Senate. The Senate switchboard, um, you can call and it will take you to whoever you wanna to speak to in the US Senate, whether it's your Senator or another Senator, you have that ability to call the Senate. And I can't tell you the number of times I've been a part of mobilizations where people flood senators calls which is happening now people are flooding the four senators that um professor cohen talked about murkowski collins uh mitt romney and others among the republicans to tell them not to do this any of you could do this and even though it feels somewhat hopeless because sometimes it feels like they say they're going to do one thing then they do something else or it feels like they don't they can't hear us, they don't listen. I just want to raise and remind for those of you that were paying attention during Kavanaugh hearings, um, a friend of mine, Ana Maria Archila, who co-leads, co-directs the Center for Popular Democracy, cornered Senator Jeff Flake in the elevator, told him her story of being sexually assaulted and got him to change his vote. So it is totally possible for people to call senators and with very personal stories, change their minds on what needs to be done right now. So for people who want to, there's always the ability to call the Senate. And that's unfortunately the only thing that's available right now. There is no approaching people in elevators right now. I, I was just asked this morning to testify in a hearing for in Congress on Friday, U.S. House Ways and Means uh, Committee, and it's entirely virtual. Everything is virtual right now. And so in the past, calling may not have been as effective as showing up, but what I'm telling you is that right now everything is virtual and so calling does have an impact. That's one. Two is obviously, every, given everything Professor Cohen just went through, obviously voting is gonna be really important and not just for the presidential election, but on these Senate races uh, and especially getting you know us being engaged, those of us that are in California being engaged in talking to people in other states where there are key Senate races is going to be really, really critical. Um, I mentioned before that I have an internship class, which you don't have to sign up for the class, you can just do the internship, where we have a list of 220,000 low-wage workers in all 50 states, and in particular in key states where senators are being voted on. You can sign up, Reed can connect you, there's his email, to get on the phone and start calling low-wage workers in these key states where U.S. Senate, US Senate races are, are being determined and really important key races that could determine the fate of what the Senate looks like after January, because let's be clear, we'll vote in November, but a new Senate wouldn't come in until January. 
And the last thing that has been, frankly, um, in the world that I'm in, you know, I, I'm married to another social movement leader and our world is just all social movement leadership all the time. <laughs> um, so since Friday night, there have been at least 10 emergency calls of national organizations uh, planning emergency mobilizations, planning mobilizations after the election. And, you know, I think what a lot of people are talking about in my world, in the social movement world, is that if you look at what's happening in Belarus right now, where um, the majority of the country felt like the person who was named president was, an Ill was illegitimately put into office and masses of people are not giving up. They are protesting and not giving up and not allowing that person to, to say, not giving up on the idea that that person is the president. I think there's a lot of talk of after November 3rd, regardless of what happens, sustained contention in the streets. And we're going to be talking a lot more about that next week when I do my class on social movements and organizing. Um, but there, there is a plan right now for a general strike coming up right after the election. There is a plan right now for sustained direct action in the streets following the election. And for people who are feeling like, uh, you know, what do I do? Um, I would say just this, that the moments when um, there it seems like those in power are not listening, um, throughout world history during those moments, change has only happened through mass mobilization. Change has only happened through mass mobilization. And that includes even the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, you know, I remember in law school, they took us to meet the Supreme Court justices. And I remember Senator Day O'Connor saying, oh, we don't read the paper. We, you know, we're not influenced by anything, anything that happens in the world. And that's just ridiculous. When you know the history of the Supreme Court, you know that they can, they can say we're on summer session, but suddenly, you know, you know, come back on a dime because there are mass mobilizations. It does happen. And um, not only can mass mobilizations impact the Supreme Court, what happens with the Supreme Court, it can definitely impact the Senate. It can definitely impact what happens with the presidency. And frankly, in world history, when things seem the most dire, it's only mass mobilization that can make that kind of transformative change. And so we'll be talking more about that next week, but just know that that is happening and already being planned for directly follow now and also directly following election day, even though nothing will be likely determined on election day. I think like the, the question about mass mobilization is absolutely going to be essential on election day. And, but let's, let's be clear. I think, you know, something that I think that's worth uh, thinking about um, right now in terms of, um, I'm tr you know, what election day is going to look like. I think it may make sense to sort of think about this. And, and so there, there are two aspects to this that are starting to get, uh, find their way into this sort of a common sense understanding of what election day is going to look like. There, there's what they call the red mist and the blue shift. Now, the red mist is what Trump is counting on, which is to say that given the, the rate at which Trump has politicized coronavirus and that he's holding these mass rallies with unmasked people that, you know, that, that he's is sort of trying to, to downplay coronavirus uh, across the country, that what you're likely to see and what the opinion and polling is starting to indicate is that 
um, his voters are going to show up and vote on election day, whereas Biden voters are going to mail in their ballots. There's a now many Biden voters will vote on election day. Many Trump voters, including Donald Trump himself, will vote by mail. But the majority is going to be skewed in that direction because of the politicization of the coronavirus. And what you've got is a situation in which by, say, midnight Pacific Standard Time on November 3rd, it's going to look like Donald Trump is leading in all the battleground states and is winning. And with the explicit understanding, because those are the votes that were counted on that day, and that subsequent votes are going to have to come in as they've been mailed. And so what you have is the red mist, right, which looks like Trump is going to win Pennsylvania, he's going to win Wisconsin, he's going to win um, Florida, he's going to win all the necessary battleground states, Arizona and elsewhere, to sweep to the presidency with a Reagan 1984-like looking mandate. And he's going to count on not just, as I quoted earlier, his federal judges stopping the count, preventing those mail-in ballots from coming in, but he's going to use his media pressure with Fox and OAN and Facebook, which is a right-wing echo chamber. Facebook is a wholly, you know, is, is basically responsible for all of the breakdown of our current politics and culture. Um, but that's a whole other story. But he's going to wield his power on those devices to declare victory on November 3rd, and then to ignore the, what is then the blue shift. So over the subsequent days, right, Democratic votes are going to come in and trickle in through mail-in counting and all of that stuff. And he either believes that he's going to be able to stop those votes or declare victory before they get counted, before the blue shift can indicate that Joe Biden may or may not have in fact won. Right now, Biden is up by about seven and a half points on national polls, which is considerably larger than Hillary Clinton's uh, margin of victory, um, and that he's leading in enough of the battleground states, in particular Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, um, Minnesota, Arizona, um, you know, Nevada, and others, that Biden, if every vote is counted, it looks like today Biden will become president, but we are going to have to hang in there. Not, and, not to, and that doesn't just mean sit on Twitter and fret. It means exactly what Professor Jairaman is saying, is that we're going to have to get out into the streets and mobilize. Now, let's be clear about one other thing, and I'll go back to and ask for Professor Jairaman's response. I think a general strike is absolutely what is necessary and what will be called for. But make no mistake, this will be dangerous. There are armed groups of Trump supporters that are already determined to go out and intimidate voters. We saw this over the weekend where a group of of armed citizens attempted to block early voting in Fairfax, Virginia. Armed Trump supporters tried to block voting in Fairfax, Virginia, early voting. We can expect the kinds of violence that we saw in Kenosha, that we saw in Portland, that we're seeing in Seattle and elsewhere to escalate as Trump supporters and Trump militia members seek to intervene in this to intimidate voters to interfere with the election in all kinds of ways. So going out on a general strike is absolutely necessary. And in California, the Bay Area would be relatively safe. But in other states, it it risks real danger. And I think what is so anxiety-inducing right now is that McConnell and Trump seem completely willing to risk the possibility of a second American civil war in order to seat this to put a right-wing anti-abortion justice on the Supreme Court. That, to them, is a worthwhile cause, a cost. I would agree with that. And also add to that that um, 
police who are typically supposed to uh, maintain order in cases of, you know, unrest or people fighting each other um, have already made it pretty clear over the last couple of months, their leanings, their, their, their willingness to support one group over another, to protect one group over another. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you'll hear more from some of our speakers about kind of the history there and, 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 and what's going on with police departments across the country. So absolutely, it will be dangerous and there may not be the kind of protection one might expect from police. Um, and I guess I would ask, uh, does that mean we don't, you know, we, we allow for fascism, essentially, if the Supreme Court, uh, you know, determines either this is the person who's going to be president or somehow determines something that Trump hinted at with a tweet or maybe not so subtly hinted at with a tweet, we just can't have an election right now. We just can't. It's just too hard. It's too difficult, you know, similar to the decision of the Supreme Court that there's no way to have a recount that's constitutional in the 2000 elections. Could it be that the Supreme Court similarly says, well, we just, it's too complicated right now. We have to leave this person in office. Any of those things are possibilities that I think we have as people have to determine, are we willing to be intimidated into letting that be? Are we willing to be intimidated by potential violence into just accepting that situation or what, what we thought was a democracy or what is called a democracy? So um, that's the real question. And I, I do wanna say one other thing about the violence, which is that I'm gonna talk about this next week. And those of you that have taken my classes before know this, but one of the things that helps to grow social movements is that if you push as people and there is some kind of violent or brutal attack on people who are peacefully demanding justice or democracy, that pushback then outrages more people and it grows uh, the amount of people who are engaged. It's called a cycle of contention. People engage in contentious activity, elites push back or their, or their if not elites, their, um, I'm trying to find the most diplomatic word, their militia, the militia that represents the elites will push back. If that happens, that has a tendency to then actually get more attention and build more outrage and grow the movement. So, you know, for those of us that have been studying and engaged in social movements for a long time, pushback is not always, it's, it's scary, it can be very dangerous, but it also can lead to more people rising up and demanding change and the growth of a movement for truly transformative change. We've seen that happen in world history. So we'll talk about this more next week. I think there's just a real question to be had. Yes, yes. Will there be violence? I would agree with Professor Cohen that my assessment is yes. Does that mean we give up on our country and allow whatever elites want to happen to happen? I think that's really what's at stake. I agree completely. Um, yes, thank you. Like, let's, uh, questions. I mean, I think it is, it's worth noting, right, that, you know, Italy, Germany, Spain, Japan were all, in the 1930s, the 20s were all democracies before they collapsed into fascism. Um, the weakness of democracy, the weaknesses of democracy 
are easily turned against democracy, which is, I think, very much what we see Trump doing, what we've seen him do from the very beginning. Uh, and the, the capacity for, now, I mean, I, I'm not one that goes along with the whole crisis of democracy. I personally, I think if you listen to my lecture about the constitution, I'm pretty sure our democracy has always been in crisis. There's never been a space in which our democracy has not been in crisis, that it is a work in progress, that it is always inadequate, incomplete, um, and you know, on some kind of journey. Uh, but there is also a clear moment in which even the pretense of democracy simply ends. Um, in violence and white nationalist authoritarianism. And I genuinely believe we are at that tipping point. Um, anybody have like questions, thoughts on any of this? Uh, Obiyama. Uh, yeah, I actually wanted to pick your brain, Professor Cohen, and also Professor Jayaraman's uh, brain about um, Trump's decision for to do the peace agreement with like, uh, I think it was, Kosovo or Serbians. I'm not sure the region, but there was just, it looked really staged, sort of like an economic deal, but it was framed as a peace agreement um, like two weekends ago. I just want to know, like, what do you think that impact is going to have on the election? Do you think people see that as performative or actual progress for Trump? Um, so Trump has been touting a number of peace deals signed between the Netanyahu government and Imrady. Um, the UAE and a number of Emirati, Bahrain, a number of, of Emirati states, uh, and then uh, Kosovo as well, uh, in an attempt to sort of build a political coalition uh, in defense of the state of Israel, particularly Israel's southern flank. Um, it has as much to do with the United States being able to sell weapons to these Emirati countries, to, to lift embargoes so the United States can send, uh, sell advanced jet fighters to the UAE and other places. But I think it also... Um, is an attempt for Trump to shore up his uh, Zionist credentials, which let's be clear, Trump's commitment to Israeli, uh, to Zionism and Israeli politics is more about Christian evangelicals than it is about American Jews. Uh, American Jews by and large are sort of divided on this issue, but they, they tend to be largely anti-Trump. Um, and are not swayed by Trump's movement of the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and other cases. Um, but what you do have here is uh, the, the Christian evangelicals uh, who believe that the second coming of Christ is dependent upon the rebuilding of the temple and blah, 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 uh, prophetic stuff. I mean, it's, it's actually very important. I just don't want to fall down that rabbit hole. Although, you know, small push and down I go, right? Um, but uh, but I, honestly, I think what's at stake here. Um, is that the Israelis are seeking to shore up their southern flank in preparation for a potential war against Iran. Sarah, do you want to add anything to that? I would just say it's also performative for, Pal you know, obviously the election here, he's obviously, he's already claimed that he, he was honored. He got the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> in a speech this past weekend. So um, I think it goes along with his, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the world's deal maker kind of idea and, and, right before the election. Yeah, and at least Jared Kushner has something to do. Um, okay, uh, Jordan. Hey there, Professor. Uh, I appreciate uh, both of your uh, teachings today. I, I was wondering, um, I'm a Democrat, and uh, I think that my perspective uh, informs my opinions here. Um, but considering the history of the Electoral College popular vote split in the last 20 years, considering changes to Senate procedure uh, and considering like the general like destruction of the Germain uh, Capitol Hill. Um, do you 
envision a scenario where there's a popular vote split and Democrats lose the presidency and potentially don't win back the Senate and accept the results of the election um, because it sounds as if there really is, I mean, it could go on the other side, but it sounds as if just going from like Newt Gingrich to today, um, it sounds like there's like less and less of a window where there's like, uh, like, you know, Jermaine, like you shake hands at the end of the day and we move forward. The question is, is there a world in which uh, Democrats simply give up, basically accept that Trump and the Senate and the Senate goes to the Republicans, the presidency and the Senate go to the Republicans? That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why I'm talking about mass mobilization. And that's why Professor Cohen is talking about danger, because there's a very real potential that people simply, as they did in 2000, let us talk about 2000. There were not mass mobilizations in 2000 when, I mean, there were some, but not at the level that I'm talking about would be needed to push back. There were not massive mobilizations sustained over time when the Supreme Court awarded the presidency to George W. Bush. People accepted it, uh, partly because he accepted it. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, absolutely, Joe Biden is kind of a, um, a uh, you know, likes to pride himself for being kind of a diplomat and, a, and like a, a respectable statesman. And so there's a possibility where he, accept, he accepts the results and that therefore Democrats accept the results. I happen to know, and I'm sure many of you do, that there are people who do not call themselves Democrats on the left who are planning for mobilization regardless of what Democrats accept. But um, so I do think there will be mobilization regardless, but it is a real good question as to whether people who call themselves Democrats accept the results and especially whether they rise up because part of what I'm gonna talk about next week is that we don't have a culture in America we haven't had a culture in America of seeing mobilization as what respectable people do. And so I think that's part of what hopefully has shifted some with the protests around Black Lives Matter and hopefully will, will not be seen as a barrier to people demanding uh, a democratic kind of um, process here. So, so that's what I would say. But yeah, I, I, I would just give you, these are the sort of odds that Nate Silver's put forward that, you know, that, that say, you know, Biden wins the popular vote is 88, chance of 88 out of 100, uh, but that Biden wins the popular vote uh, but loses the electoral college is 11, is, is a one in 10 chance. That's, that's, you know, that, that, that's what he, they're forecasting. One in 10 chance that Biden will win the popular vote, but lose the, in the electoral college. I think it's quite clear that Trump knows he is not going to win the popular vote. And, and Trump has always ruled from an explicitly minoritarian position, right? He, he's never tried to reach across the aisle. Like this is what people keep waiting for him to do. When is he going to reach out? He's never going to do it because what he, all he thinks he needs is he needs a committed, hardened 43% of the public that are completely irrationally dedicated to him and that he can win with that. And, and all he has to do is muddy the waters on the other side, um, you know, just throw mud and, and, and drag everyone down into the bog uh, and, you know, and poison the atmosphere. 
and, and but have his committed core a core group of voters. So I, I think that the, the Dems, you know, they 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 are quitters. They do surrender, like because you know, in a sense, they they believe more in process than power, and they're corporate overlords by you know, which is a hard you know is not the best most political science oriented language, but they're the corporate benefactors, the people who pay for their campaigns, the people who pay for the, the democratic party don't want this kind of disruption. And that I, but I also believe that there are large numbers of Democrats that, you know, we saw this in the primaries who would rather lose with Biden than have won with Bernie Sanders, because at least they could have maintained their sense of righteous indignation at Donald Trump uh, without having to give back tax cuts and have a kind of social democratic state that puts people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi into a, a dangerous political position. So I, I think that the, you know, the Dems are, their coalition is really contentious. It is very highly fraught. But if, if there are enough of us out in the streets pushing them, it might afford them some kind of backbone. Um, and so what this might mean is that we need to actually anticipate the moment in which the United States has two governments. Two presidents, right? Um, let's go to another question. Sorry, do you want to? I, I, yeah, I do want to say I'm seeing a lot of despair comments of of feeling despair in the in the chat, and and I I just want to say um, I, I know it sounds crazy. I felt despair this weekend. I I personally felt despair. I'm just going to name my own situation. <laughs> I felt despair this weekend. Um, I, it felt like the day after Trump was elected. But I feel, I feel so much hope. And I'm, I'm going to share a lot of that. If you can wait a few days, I'm going to share a lot of that when we talk about social movement work. And even on Wednesday, when we talk about what's happening with low-wage workers, I feel so much hope because I am seeing people who uh, were never engaged before, you know, very, very engaged uh, and I, and not just low wage workers. I'm seeing you know employers, people who you might associate with Trump or capitalists, you know, just very angry and wanting to mobilize. And you know, I, so I feel a lot of hope. And I what I know from studying social movements and being involved in them for for the last two decades is that the, you know when when there are moments like this of despair and people rise up. Quite often, if people rise up and continue to rise up, you actually win more transformative change than you would have had there been no despair. And I don't know, I don't, I can't explain that quickly in two minutes. I can explain it next Monday. But there are moments when there's extreme despair and it actually leads to greater mobilization, greater contentious action that actually drives more transformative change than we would have seen otherwise, than we would have seen had there been a simple transition from Trump to Biden, you know, had there been a simple Democratic president put into office and some of us sighed relief and stepped back and then went on with our daily lives. In some ways, the contention and the mobilization, as much as it's needed, can actually drive more stru transformative structural change than what would have happened otherwise. So sometimes, movement from despair is um, hopeful. And I'll say more about that next week, but I just wanted to give people some hope <laughs> in this moment. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Thank you. Um, okay, Rosie. Hi. So um, I was wondering that like, usually I might be wrong about this, but when I like think about Supreme Courts, usually Republicans 
Republicans are more motivated to go to the polls than Democrats. I'm wondering if the idea of like trying to get some Republicans to vote for Joe Biden because they hate Donald Trump is not going to be effective anymore because they just need to get more conservative, conservative justices. And that's your only goal. Is that like a large idea within the Republican Party conservative uh, community? So it is, um, but I think that, so the, the uh, one thing that, you know, is, well, we're, uh, there's a couple of things. One is that the understanding, we, we have two parties, right? <laughs> we're this enormous country and we have two parties, which means that each party is a broad coalition of interests. Now, often, you know, increasingly we're very polarized. We see the other side is monolithic and so on. But the Republican coalition is made up of a bunch of different groups that have a lot of different interests invested in it. A lot of them are just corporate businessmen who really don't care about Christianity or God or abortion or any of those things. They just simply don't care. What they care about is low taxes, low regulation, ending environmental restrictions, um, deregulating finance, all of those kinds of things that allow the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. And so the, the, then there are those that, in particular the evangelicals, who are less concerned about economic policy and much more concerned about morality and Christianity and those kinds of things. And then there are multiple other elements within the Republican coalition, including the far right, who have now really joined the Republican coalition in a way that they'd previously been kept out. So the, the militias, the Nazis, the Klansmen and others, the overt white nationalists, overt white supremacists, the kind of people that Stephen Miller communicates with and communicates to, have entered that coalition in a big way. So it's hard to say, like, whether or not, you know, the Supreme Court nomination is going to motivate one group over another within that coalition. But keep in mind, like, Trump is going to use this to motivate evangelicals and Christians in an anti-abortion direction to come out and vote. But this justice is going to issue maybe one decision or two decisions about abortion. And the rest are going to be about the minimum wage, about labor law, about equal protection for women in, you know, in discrimination cases. Most of what they're going to be confronted with are not big culture war arguments, but in fact, you know, um, property issues and cap issues around, you know, global capitalism. So who's being motivated more? Now, traditionally, the right is motivated more by the Supreme Court, but opinion polling indicates quite explicitly that Democrats are much more, in, you know, motivated by the Supreme Court in this cycle, particularly after Kavanaugh. And we saw that in, in 2018 in the midterms, that the anger that largely women felt at uh, what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings drove them to the polls uh, to give us, you know, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and, um, you know, a number of other, like, you know, the, the largest number of women to ever enter the United States Congress. Yeah, I just want to add to that, that there were four red states in 2016 that voted to raise the minimum wage in their states on the ballot, on the same ballot that they voted for Trump and Republican governors and Republican legislators. And so there is, within that coalition, Professor Cohen's talking about, there is this huge population of working people who many of them voted Obama, Obama, Trump. And, and we see this particularly in the Rust Belt in Pennsylvania, in Michigan. They, you know, felt that, you know, they were, they're working people. They generally vote to raise the minimum wage. They generally, you know, they support organizing, even if they don't like the word union. Um, and they saw in Trump something that was different and something that spoke to maybe their social 
um, their racial and social understandings of the world and their anger towards Obama and their anger towards um, ra on race. Uh, and I do know that many of those folks that have said, and many of them in the states that I'm engaged in doing voter engagement, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, folks that have said, I made a mistake. It is, has nothing to do with the Supreme Court or anything like that. It has everything to do with the pandemic and the economy. Those are the two things that are on most working people's minds is the economy and the pandemic. And those two things people feel very betrayed about with regard to Trump's actions with regard to the pandemic and the economy. And so I don't think those things will shift for those working people with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not matter to those folks nearly as much as the pandemic and the economy. Yeah, uh, that's uh, yeah, hundred percent. Like, so let's see. Let's we've got time for maybe one more question. So let's go to Char. Hi there. Uh, it's Char, but you're good. Um, I can't even get the I can't even get the gimmies. I'm my bad. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> you're fine. I kind of have two questions. Um, I guess the first one is uh, considering like all of the ridiculousness in the 2000 election election in Florida. Um, and all the hanging chads and the butterfly ballots. And it just seems like there's obviously no way to organize a legitimate and fair recount. Um, so I guess I'm wondering what is the state of the federal government within the concept of a revote? Uh, like if that's something that's possible or, or, or what the deal is with that. Uh, and then I also was just wondering, because uh, within the constitution and like all the hypocrisies that are in the constitution, they do state first and foremost that if the government is not serving the people, the people have the right to overthrow the government. So I'm wondering if that were to happen, <laughs> would the government, um, like, would it be a similar dynamic, right, within like the Revolutionary War? Like, would we be at war or would it be, I don't know, I'm just wondering. You're asking us to predict the future, is that? about <laughs> <laughs> your ability. I mean, it's so important to remember that all of these things are just concepts you know, including what the Supreme Court does or what the president says is law or Congress says is law. And they're only concepts insofar, and they only are law and affect us insofar as they are enforced. And so who enforces the law or the rule of, or the rule? Who's in rule? Is it, it, it can be the military, right? It can be the police. Uh, those are the two folks that actually enforce the law with regard to our day-to-day -day lives. So the question comes down to if the people rise up to overthrow the government, um, it's not about do the Republicans accept that, it's about does the military accept that? Does the military listen to the people or, or side with the government? Do the police in localities, when people rise up and say this is unjust, this is unfair, this is undemocratic, do they side with the, the people who are rising up, do they side with the militia that represents the, the far right that's attacking the people who are rising up? Do they try to maintain order? Ultimately comes down to the military and the police. They will determine, you know, the Supreme Court will determine it as a concept, but in our reality, it is the military and the police. So, um, and again, I think it's important to, for all of us to be watching what is happening in Belarus right now, because it's a very clear, it, it could give us some indication of what could happen if, if and when we rise up, people rise up, um, and, and how the military might react. So I think, to me, if we're going to start predicting, we have to look at what does the military think and believe about Donald Trump versus an attempt to get him out of office. 
Yeah, that's, I, I think, really a good answer. Um, I, I think that we, we need to look to Belarus, although my choice is always to look to history, which is the reminder that the United States actually did have a series of violent coup d'etats that overthrew the legitimate government uh, that brought about the end of Reconstruction. Uh, that the American Civil War was the actual American Revolution that not only overthrew the Southern plantocracy, but ended the regime of chattel slavery in the United States, enfranchised African Americans, gave them the right to vote, and made them citizens. And that regime lasted through the 1860s into the starting into the 1870s until a violent white supremacist revolution eventually destroyed Republican governments in the South and brought about what the South knows as redemption. So, which is this the reclaiming of political power? in Southern states by the old Confederate Democrats. And so this country has a long history of violent white supremacist organizations overthrowing the will of voters, overthrowing constitutional um, guarantees, uh, and to instituting white supremacist rule, white, the rule of white power. So that, that is what happened in the United States in the 1870s until the, the, the formal agreement of, um, that, you know, that, that gives you... Um, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Mississippi plan, and the institution of Jim Crow in the 1890s. So the, the history of violent racist coup d'etats is a deep part of our history. It's not, it's not happening overseas. It's not, and what you had there was Ulysses S. Grant sending the United States military into Southern states to defend Republican governments in the South, a deal that was broken in eight, with the, the disputed election of 1876, in which a presidential, in which Rutherford B. Hayes got fewer votes in the, the, in the, the popular vote, but was given the electoral college votes of Florida in 1876, under an agreement that would end Reconstruction and the withdrawal of federal troops from the South and the surrender of black rights in the eight, in what is known as the Compromise of 1877. So this has happened before, it can happen again. Uh, we are out of time here. Um, that was a, a very, I thought, useful conversation. Thank you um, uh, to Saru in particular uh, for your amazing insights and, uh, and encouragements. Um, uh, and to all of you who bravely offered your thoughts and questions, I, I thank all of you. Um, Saru, do you have anything you want to add as a parting word? Okay, thank you all. Um, we will see you all um, on Wednesday. Uh, best of luck, all right?